Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. On this episode of Around the Coin, I interviewed the CEO of Pay Near Me, Mr. Danny Shader. We had a great conversation. He talked about how he started the company and how the company grew and business management philosophy and a bunch more. Uh, Pay Near Me started in 2009 and they process now about $5 billion worth of transaction volume with 5,000 plus clients. So they're a very significant company. Uh, just based in the U.S., they started off as a spinoff, which is a really interesting story from another idea that Danny had. And they now focus, originally they focus on cash payments, and they now offer many other ways of, of integration of payments. Um, and they're, they're a really unique story. There's a lot of payment companies out there, but Pay Near Me and Danny's story I found particularly interesting. And I hope you enjoy the show. This show is sponsored by Otter Labs. Otter is a fantastic place if you want to find developers for your project, whether it's just starting out or whether you have $30 million in funding. Otter Labs finds developers down in Argentina and South America and will connect you and interview with the, with the, sorry, with the, uh, engineer with the developer, and you can hire as many people as you want. And it's a great inexpensive way to hire uh, developers for your project. The nice thing about Argentina is it's on the same time zone as the United States. They have a very good exchange rate on their currency, and the folks on there are highly trained, talented engineers. So check out hireotter.com. And with that, I hope you enjoy, enjoy the show. I bring you Danny Shader from Pay Near Me. All right, guys, we are live. I have with me here Anne Hay and Danny Shader, both from Pay Near Me. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Um, maybe, Danny, I'll direct this question to you. Do you want to give the listeners and myself a little background on how you, maybe even extending past Pay Near Me if you'd like to, but where, how you sort of ended up working at Pay Near Me and how you ended up starting the company, uh, if there's particular Bullet points. I, I looked at your background, and it's quite extensive with the different companies you've worked at. Um, so maybe just kick us off with Pay Near Me, how you started the company, and what the company does, and we'll go from there. Okay, so I started the company originally as something called Quedit um, mm-hmm. uh, back in 2009. The, the idea was it was the world's first intentionally unreliable payment system. And this was back in the day when mm-hmm. Farmville was happening and all that, and there were these virtual goods being sold that had no marginal cost. And so we had this insight that we would um, grant virtual credit for virtual goods since the risk of default was zero, right? I mean, if you defaulted on something that had no value, there was, so the idea was, you know, to sort of extend credit to people and then they could repay promises to pay and they'd get more credit. And anyhow, really clever idea. It had absolutely no market acceptance, but it was a really clever idea. But the, part of the idea of doing that was that the previous business I'd run called Good Technology uh, we had raised um, a quarter of a billion dollars of capital for that business, and it was incredibly complicated. Um, you know, really hard thing to execute. It ended up working out very well, but it was a it was a real challenge. And so, when that was done, and we sold that to Motorola, and then I decided to go to the next thing. I want to do something really simple. So the idea was quite it. Um, by the way, here we are now, later, having raised you know hundred plus million dollars of capital in a business that makes. Uh, that looks super simple. <laughs> mm. So mm. credit, which was you know uh, super simple, ended up turning into something that was incredibly complicated, much more complicated than the thing that I was trying to get away from doing. Uh, so there you go. Ah, 
It was that when you say complicated, is it complicated in in a business model sense, or was it just technically hard? Yes, was, yes, and then you left out the regulatory part and the business development part. Yeah, yeah. So, Painter Me, um, those quickly. What Painter Me does is we're a payment experience management company, so we uh, we take over everything related to the interactions that our cust- that our customers, which are businesses and government agencies, have with their customers who are consumers around payment. So we're handling all the forms of tender, so the cash, the ACH mm. cards, the Apple Pay, the Google Pay, et cetera, through whatever, what are called payment channels are. So the web, the IVR, the mobile, the customer service rep, et cetera. And then all the engagement systems, the reminders, the, the scheduling of payments, the future payments, all of that stuff. So that's all mm. um, managed by us with all the business logic around that. So it's a, mm-hmm. when you think about what's involved in that, there's, there's all of the technology to do that. It's a fairly significant enterprise software challenge. There's all of the integrations we have to do. So we're integrated into um, store POSs. We can talk about how we handle cash. We're integrated into the banking system. We're integrated into Apple Pay and Google Pay and all these other things. We have then a very extensive stack of software that allows ourselves to connect all these different business systems that our customers are running to allow us to extract information and post payments. Um, we're regulated as a money transmitter in 50 states. We have a fairly healthy gambling business, so we're regulated as a gambling payments provider in a bunch of states. Um, so, yeah, it's mm-hmm. really complicated. Um, and everything has yeah. to work perfectly. Wow. By the way, and everything has to work perfectly all the time, 24 by 7. Um, other than that, it's a piece of cake. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's the that's the nature of payments is that, <clears throat> yeah, there, there's no – bugs are just uh, – yeah, extremely, extremely well, difficult to deal you with. You say that, and yet, you know, one of the incumbents that we compete with, I mean, frankly, one of the reasons we exist is because they have a hard time keeping their systems up. So that gives us the entree then present what we do, and mm. their lack of reliability allows us to use the reliability card to then pitch this entire system. And people are, wow, I didn't even know I could get something to do that for me. So, yeah. Would you guys be on the level of like authorized.net, or, no, or no, is no. it a level above that? No, no, we're, we're playing above that. In fact, we are not... It, which talks separately about cash, but generally speaking, we're insourcing the processing. So we are all the value added above the processing through the customer interaction. So, you know, a typical customer for us might be a lender. The payment portal that you're interacting with or the mobile experience is ours. The integration into Apple Pay, if you want to use that method for us, is ours. When you're calling the IVR, it's us. When the customer service rep is interacting with you and changing the pricing, that's us. If you're, if you're, mm. and then importantly, let's talk about cash for a second. And by the way, if you want to pay that auto loan with cash, you're running through the thing we do process ourselves, which is we run our own unique proprietary real, it's the, only in the world, real time electronic cash transaction network. So we have integrations in the point of sale terminals at over 26,000 retail stores. So all the 7 Eleven, CBS, Family Dollar, H Gas Express, Casey General Store, and others coming. Those POS systems are integrated into our switch. Our switch is then connected to their loan management system, property management system, gaming operator system, et cetera, hmm. so that when a barcode that's issued by our system is carried by a consumer to a store, when the consu- when the POS operator, you know, when the clerk scans the barcode and you hand over your cash, in real time, your payment is credited by that business system that our customer is running. Mm, so it turns cash into a real-time electronic tender. Now, by the way, that's what we started with. But then we extended it to all these other tender types. So, in fact, we jokingly say we're the only company in the world that ever referred to credit cards and things like that as alternative tender types because <laughs> we, you know, we started as a very cash-centric model. Um, but we realized that, and we can, you know, it depends how geeky you want to get, but there's something kind of cool about the, the through a very lucky accident, the, way, the things we had to do to process cash, when you then apply them to other forms of tender, introduce a whole new level of reliability to the payment process. And that turns out to be really useful in every segment. But by the way, if you want to go there in gaming in particular. Um, and so the integration we did for cash gaming, and yeah. for all these other tender types. So as the, as a little background on my side, so the first startup I, I did was called Zing Checkout and it was a point of sale system for uh, apparel stores specifically. And it branched out. We ended up selling the company to big commerce but I got very familiar with um, point of sale integrations and, you know, just kind of like behind the scenes, what goes on in point of sale. Yeah. And 
uh, so just so I understand, so when you go into a store with a QR code that was probably printed out or on your phone, it's, on your phone. And, from, it's not necessarily a QR code. In our case, it's most case, it's, it's mostly not a QR code because most most of these POSs are, that's not what they're scan, not what they're scanning. But no, oh, it's a barcode. Yes. Mm-hmm. And does that does it have to work? Does it work where there's a you guys would own a central database and then all the point of sale systems would like hit it with the API and say, does this code exist? Kind of like uh, the way gift cards work. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah. So what's happening is the POS thinks we are another gift card network. So the POS thinks, we are, ah. the POS thinks we are in or Blackhawk. In fact, sometimes we right. are in or Blackhawk or green dot. Sometimes we're running the act, the, what you think of as the activation over that card network. So what's typically happening is, we, there's a skew in the item master. Boy, we're really getting geeky, but there's a skew in the item master associated. I know, I love it. Associated with a pricing plan, and that's concatenated with um, a bin range that and a transaction ID. And so, when you're scanning, it's looking up that skew. Said, oh, this should be a three ninety nine convenience fee. Split the following way, and we're going to route, but it's for a load, mm-hmm. not for a tender, and we're going to route it to. Pay near me through pay near me's bin, which may run over Incom or Blackhawk or our own connection, comes to us. We then get the transaction ID and an amount. We say, oh, this 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 store in this location at this time is trying to load trying to load is trying to accept two hundred and fifty three dollars and eighty five cents for this transaction ID. Okay, so so far we're on the what I call the commodity mm. side of the network, which is the activation. Now comes the all the years and years of development. Oh, okay. That we're looking up that ID. That's a that's a property management rent payment for Appfolio. There's a real time connection to Appfolio on behalf of one of Appfolio, which is a property management system, on behalf of one of their property managers saying, "Hey, we're trying to accept two hundred fifty three dollars of rent for this account." And in the Appfolio system, Appfolio is saying, "Yep, we're willing to accept that because that's a really good tenant." Or, "No, we're not. That guy's an eviction. We don't want his money." It says yes. Then we're checking. Oh, okay. Mm. Are all the compliance conditions met? Is this a, is this amount acceptable? Is it okay to accept it for this kind of transaction in this location where that POS is locating? Yes. Bing. Signal to the POS. Open the cash drawer. Accept the payment. Cash drawer pops. Appfolio now records that transaction is done. There's now a receivable from us. We have a receivable from say 7-Eleven. We're then settling from 7-Eleven into our our bank account and from bank account to Appfolio and the guy's rent's paid. But that's super complicated. What does it feel like to the mm. customer? I walked in with my mm. phone. They scanned at, at one o'clock in the morning. They scanned my phone. I gave them my cash. I got a receipt printed out that said, I've paid my rent. The rent's done. It's not reversible. It's, you know, 100% guaranteed good funds. And I'm for the, for the property manager and I'm off the hook and off I go. As opposed to... Mm. I go to a Western Union or MoneyGram agent. I wait in line. I fill out a form. I give them money. They charge me an upcharge if I want to get the money there sooner. The property manager has no idea the money's coming until it shows up. It shows up. By the way, they may not, not have wanted the money um, because maybe I was an eviction mm-hmm. or I was in foreclosure or you know or I you know I whatever it is. Um, and so it's just it's just a much better approach. It's faster, better, cheaper for a problem that uh, you know people have every day. But but then put that in context yeah. to Payneria. Wow, that's yeah. Just, Thanks for going down the rabbit hole with me on that. That's just the cash, right? Yeah. That same UI that puts so, you the barcode. When you got when you let's say you you know you're going to pay this guy this this lender back, you get a choice. Do you want to pay with cash? Okay, you'll do that. If you want to pay with card, then we'll collect your card credentials, tokenize it, and by the way, hide all those credentials from the customer service so that you know they can they can have their customer service agents working at home while you're entering this information on your phone where you are is big plus during COVID, or maybe your ACH mm-hmm. or whatever. Now we're going to store all those credentials. We're going to let you um, choose when you want to pay, future pay, scheduled pay, et cetera. And then we're going to let you swap tender types because, by the way, people who pay in cash this month may want to pay with ACH next month, may want to pay with debit, may want to pay with Apple Pay, may want to, and they switch around. And we make all of this, this is all handled in our system, so it's all transparent mm-hmm. with respect to the ultimate merchant who's the beneficiary of the payment. Like I said, it's a piece of cake. Mm. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty simple. So where's the complicated part? Yeah, exactly. uh, I feel like, so I, so I, I built a, a point of sale system 
And I also uh, started a crypto crypto gift card exchange network called Redeem. So everything you said makes sense to me. Um, but I, I wonder. For people out there listening to this, I hope you understand what yeah. I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, but yeah. But actually, from the from the business perspective, is they can get paid through any tender type, through any engagement model, uh, through any channel. It all works. If one form of payment doesn't work, we can swap to another one. It's all done transparently. And why does all this matter? Because nobody has. Our customers are not the people who are buying Stripe and Braintree and building their own system. Our customers are the vast majority of businesses and government agencies who have who don't have enough development resources to, to, to manual all the stuff they need to own their core. So why are they rebuilding a payment system when we've got the best yeah. user experience and the best uh, analytics and the best settlement and the best in the world combining all the stuff for these consumers? It's a much it's an enterprise software play for a complicated, sticky, highly regulated problem yeah. they don't want to mess with. And the consequence of this is we drive more consumers to customer service, we reduce their cost of, you know, their total systems cost of payments, and we do it with technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you guys are tackling a super complicated problem. I like that you point out the regulatory thing. It's a, you know, yeah, 13 years of work. Piece of cake. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me cover a couple of the, the high-level things. So you started it 13 years ago. You were the founder. Uh, where's the company at now, either in terms of revenue, employees, money raised, however you uh, can talk about the traction? Of- well, why don't we talk, say, I think, I think we can talk about this. We're processing, you know, closing in on $5 billion a year of payments. We're growing, you know, very, very quickly. We're, you know, well north of 100 employees and actually recruiting a lot of people right now. Um, the business is accelerating. So the bigger, we're actually growing faster as we get bigger. So that's, um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's now a, it's a meaningful, sizable thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And you, uh, back in 2009, eight, nine, eight, yeah. When you started this, you did, is this, is this, uh, was this a spinoff from, uh, credit? No, 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 this, okay. So what happened was the original, literally the idea was after good technology, which was my previous business, that was the what I thought was the most complicated thing I'd ever done. Um, I wanted to do something really simple. And so there was this, you know, we had this wacky idea that was inspired. Another guy had this crazy idea for social payments. We took it and ran with it, turned it into credit. Literally, by the way, there's just as a, another story. There's a guy named Steve Caps, who is, was on the original Mac development team as an Apple fellow, also a Microsoft fellow. He was one of the first guys we recruited, super smart guy. And I showed him the, my, PowerPoint mockups of this thing of credit. And he's like, Oh, it's a joke to the state. Oh, it's just 10 screens. You know, that 10 screens is now everything I just described to you. But anyway, we ended yeah. up creating credit. Like it was intellectually interested, but literally nobody cared. But the thing that the, the lucky accident was that I knew somebody who knew somebody at Seven Eleven, and I said, we're doing this game payments thing and we want a place where people can repay their promises. And Seven Eleven said, yeah, let's do that. Let's be that place because they were, they had a strong mm. gift card business and they were making a play, a strategic play to increase their, their gift card business. And this looked like an adjunct to that. And it was, you know, it was proprietary. It was in a product that you weren't going to get everywhere else. And they agreed to do this. Yeah. So then when we went out pitching, oh, by the way, and so sad, I thought, oh, this went so easily with 7-Eleven. Every retailer we approach is going to say yes to this. And of course we approached other retailers and like, we're not opening our POS to you. Go away. Like they thought we were crazy. But 7-Eleven yeah. had the, the vision and the, and the foresight and, and the trust to let us do this. Then we went out and pitched it to people. And um, they uh, people were like, well, I don't care about that promise thing, but that cash thing at 7-Eleven, that's what we do in Japan. You're saying we can do that here? I'm like, yeah. And they go, great. So forget the promises thing. Let's just use you to like collect cash from consumers at 7-Eleven. Mm. That seems like a great idea. Mm. And that we, huh. we named that, that became Pain Me, and then... We dropped the whole credit thing and and off we ran with uh, And then what happened was customers, we were doing the cash. We're like, well, if you're doing my cash, why don't you take over my card payments? Well, if you're doing my card payments, oh, I see. why don't you take over my mobile and my IVR? Oh, if you're doing that, take over the customer service rep. Oh, by the way, can you do disbursements? Can you give me business rules? Again? You know, yeah. So it's it just starts growing. Yeah, yeah. Can, you, <laughs> and, uh, can you just, can you just grow got. my business? I'm sorry. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you just grow, take over my entire business? Uh, so... 
that's kind of interesting. So the, it ended up being a Trojan horse, the cash part of it, and the, the gaming just became not interested. The thing about that story that I'm most fascinated by someone who started companies is that you are a tiny little startup with no traction and you get an enterprise partnership with 7-Eleven that actually works. There's so many times that I meet founders that have like, oh, we're in partnership with this big company. And it's just like, it's almost like a cliche to not even waste your time with that because it, it almost never works out. But I guess you're the one in a hundred million chance that it actually turns into something. It, it works, so it when you're super way, small, we drive, you know, millions of store visits, pay millions of dollars of revenue shares. Like it's a, it's a really good business for everybody. Um, I mean, for a while, yeah. the, way, the way they described it was, I think it was useful. So we had our connection to POS and we built all the software to allow us to connect all these other businesses and government agencies. And so, our counterpart at 7-Eleven used to refer to us as the Y connector into the 7-Eleven POS. Right. So mm. you could, we could. Was that looking back at it now? I'm was sorry? it like, I was going to ask you, so you, you're, a, you're probably a three person, four person, you know, a small team. When you go to 7-Eleven, they trust you to integrate to their point of sale. Was that as daunting in actuality as it sounds? Look, this is like, so what are the, I mean, look, I've done a lot of startups in my life and there are people who are visionaries who know exactly what they're going to do when they start out and they actually end up doing that. It's never happened in my life. I've always started mm. working on A and then you then becomes A prime and then becomes B and B prime and then C and then you end up over here and it had nothing to do with what you started with. And that's, you know, that has been the story of every business yeah. I've ever been involved with and it's certainly the story of this one. Um, you know, kudos to Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, those incredible people who can see the future that way. Mine is just like, there's a great line of, in business school and the professor said, which was uh, the best way to be in business is to be in business. And the idea is just yeah. have something you're yeah. selling to people and let them react to it and then adjust. Right. And so yeah. that's been the story of yeah. this company. Yeah. And look, I think the reason it worked with 7-Eleven mm-hmm. at the time was there was a middle manager who's a great guy who now is, he's no longer 7-Eleven, but he remains a very close friend um, who saw it. Like he saw, he's in fairness, he saw what we could be long before we saw what we could be because 7-Eleven had the experience of, they do this in Japan. This is how bills get paid in Japan. It's a totally different technological approach, mm. but the user behavior of taking your cash in a barcode to the convenience, convenience, the convenience store is a, is a very common modality mm. for bill payment in Japan. 7-Eleven, I don't know if you know this, it's owned by the Jap- a Japanese company. And so the guys in the U.S. have a lot of oh, I didn't know that. what happened in Japan. And so the, he, he saw it and he's like, you, we can do this. And by the way, he was, he, was, he was doing new merchandising for new stuff. And people were coming to him all the time with stuff. And he's like, I can't do it. I can't do it because I have no way to integrate. And he's like, but you guys could be my integration. Right. So it's just one of those happy mm. accidents. And then it started working and success built on success. And, and it's, you know. I think it, I think I think they're very happy with it. We're certainly mm. a phenomenal partner over the years. Um, you know, we're super mm. committed to. Like the best way for us to be successful is to have them get a lot of store visits and make a lot of money, and that's what we're we're focused on doing for them. On behalf of the customers, we're helping to get paid. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I always I always wonder why more uh, company, we call them enterprise companies, just companies that are in multiple countries and specifically, uh, countries in the East and West. There's so many things that we do differently. And as founders, I see things in the U S and the Western world, somehow they just, whether it's, they come up on, you know, news sources more or, or, or deal flow from investors, for whatever reason, it feels like there's not a, there's not a, 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 a clear window between what's happening, say, in China or Southeast Asia, maybe Southeast Asia more. China's kind of the, I wouldn't call it a black box, but it's just kind of gray as to what goes on. I was watching this as a side note. I was watching this video that showed the different monetization strategies for the equivalent of YouTube in China. And it it, it basically is like you can, as a, as a video maker on this platform, you can sell merchandise, you can have paid comments, you can have like guest speakers that pay to come on. There's like 17 different ways to monetize. Right. And it was showing that in the West, in America, it's like Shopify or it's like uh, Spotify, $14.99 a month. And then the Chinese version is like $3.99 and there's 16 ways you can pay them. And the more I thought about it, it makes sense to have multiple 
to like bifurcate that more, to have more, more types of ways that the consumers can engage with the content producers. And uh, Twitch ended up building something very similar to that, where there's like, you know, 16 different ways that you can pay the producers on Twitch. And I, I wonder if you, if you believe that to be true, where companies like 7-Eleven or even you guys that are in multiple countries, do you, over the course of the last 13 years, have you seen multiple opportunities where you're like, oh God, if I had the time, I would just start that company because this is what's working there. <laughs> well, first of all, one question, we're only operating in the U.S. And in fact, mm. um, whereas my company oh, I didn't done things very internationally, I think Pay Near Me is a very North American business because there are we solve a set of problems that are fairly unique to North America and don't exist in other countries. And by the way, I want to make sure we come back and talk about the gaming business because what's interesting to me is the people we're going to compete with in the U.S. are people who've successfully solved problems in Europe. And my assertion is they're solving mm. problems that don't matter in the U.S. And we're solving problems that matter in the U.S. that don't matter in Europe. So we can come back to that for a second. Mm. Um, but look, I think the, the best thing is when companies are innovative. And my old boss and mentor, a guy named Bill Campbell, used to say, you know, innovation isn't just inventing something new. It's also just bringing in a good idea from someplace else. And so, yeah. <clears throat> Right. In other words, if you've got if you've seen something work over there and you can twist it and bend it so it fits and does and improves your business, that's just as innovative as vending something new out of a hat because you fundamentally improve the core of what you're doing. So, mm. you know, I think there are there is a trap to think, well, it worked over there. It should work here. But there's also the trap of thinking it worked over there. It can't work here. Right. And like everything, there's a yin and a yang and you yeah. got to figure out the right, the right balance. Yeah. And to answer your question, yeah. have, have there been other yeah. ideas that I've had? You know, I'm not a. Crazy enough, even though I've done these things my whole life, I've never had a good idea on my own. All of my original ideas have been terrible. But to my earlier point, they've all been mm. props that got me into business, ending up to, that ended up being turning into something that was a good idea. But my, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I'm not the guy, like I said, I'm not the, the visionary who figures this stuff out. Now, when we write the book about Pain Army, I'm sure we'll yeah. come up with some great story like the Beanie Babies were for Pez. You know, Pez Beanie Babies were for eBay, dating myself yeah, yeah. Um, on how it was all brilliant. We all figured out in the beginning, but the reality is no, it's just been a series of, of you know, progress by Braille, you know, just feeling our way through the. Yeah, you know, no, I, I, I totally hear you there. Um, I want to ask about this gaming situation because yeah. you seem excited about it. Uh, when you say gaming, are you, are you describing, I'm, talking gambling. I'm going to a casino and playing games, on, online gambling, right? gambling, sports book, advanced deposit wager online. Yeah. Online. So, so we serve our two, our two segments that we serve are things that look like bill payment historically, you know, things that lending utilities, rent, things like that. And then talk about the U S problem. We ended up completely by accident, ending up with incumbency being integrated into essentially any, you name any, almost any company you can name in the United States that is that is in the online gambling world, we are processing payments for them. You name them, they're wow. The, what, the only one that comes to mind is that possibly happen. The reason that possibly happened is that like DraftKings? I'm sorry, like, that's the one that we don't do. So FanDuel and everybody else. Oh, that's the only one I know. <laughs> so it's every everybody but DraftKings. Um, and well, what's the problem? Credit cards don't work reliably for gambling in the United States because either the network doesn't allow it or the card issuer doesn't allow it because it blows out their fraud models. So mm. you, if, you, if you go to Amazon and you pay with a credit card and, you, and you're a good card holder, your payment's going to be accepted, right? It, it's not even, it's, that's not an issue. If you go to a... Mm you know, FanDuel and you present a credit card and you're a good card holder, a debit card, or whatever you're it may or may not be accepted. And it may have nothing to do with mm. whether you're a good actor or not. That's a very American problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what, if you, if you're a, an, one of these online sites and you've gone through all the effort of acquiring a customer, doing all the KYC checks, making sure that they're a good actor, oh, yeah. making sure they're not on the, do not playlist. Make sure they're they're in the right geographic location. You've done everything to line them up. You're already they're motivated to play. You've spent all that money to get them to that point. They're ready. They're a good. They're in good financial condition. They're ready to go. And you can't take their payment. What do you do? Well, pre us, you let them go. But what about with us? 
let's present them with the option to pay with cash. Oh. And so cash became, from the cash network, it became the basis for us to get integrated into everybody. Anybody who's operating, any new operator, anybody opening in a new state, because as you may know, these states are now increasingly, as a result of some Supreme Court decisions a couple of years ago, they're opening up all these. It's it's no longer illegal yeah. at the federal level to do some of the stuff. So states are choosing to, to open up. The players, the these uh, operators are moving into new states. They all call us. We integrate all of them. And at the same time that's happened, we've m migrated, as I said from before, from doing cash to doing all forms of tender. So there's this land grab going right now on in the gambling world, right? As all these people are spending saying, who's going to become the payment processors? Well, who are, who are the, who are the viable people for that? They're the guys who've historically done card processing in that world. There's us with the incumbency from cash expanding into electronic payments. And there are the gateway providers who came over from Europe. Now, what's the European gaming problem? The European gaming problem is I want to accept payments from multiple countries in different countries. I want an aggregation of multiple payment types. So, mm -hmm. and I want to do it with the least amount of work. So what's the, what's the right business solution? You build a gateway product that presents all these different forms of tender, but you're, but they're all operating on the premise that if you pre present good funds, you're going to get approved. So the, mm -hmm. the gateway model looks just like the commerce model in the U S which is you just kind of do a real time connection between the, the operator system and the gaming payment system, and you say, here's this payment, I want to collect it, and they present the payment and the consumer tenders payment, and it works and you fund it back. No problem, right? So really valuable to be a aggregator of payment methods in Europe across multiple markets. What's the US problem? It's not multiple mm. markets, it's, it's one market, but the primary form of tender is not reliable. So what do you need? You need a system where you don't have a, tra a transaction-centric model of the operator assumes that the print, that the gateway is going to get a good payment. You need a system where the operator assumes the payment may or may not get a good form of payment. Well, what does that look like? Right. That looks a lot like issuing a barcode to somebody who may or may not go to the store with cash to pay for it. So our system right. is inherently asynchronous and built on the premise of non-reliability of follow-through. So when we've integrated cash mm. and now we integrate all these payment types, we can, using a account-centric model or a customer-centric model instead of a transaction-centric model, say, okay, customer XYZ123, who we don't have, we just, he's just an identifier in our system, right, wants, wants to add funds. Present him his card. If that fails, gracefully present him something else. Gracefully present him something else. Eventually collect his cash if you have to. Whatever good form of tender you've got, once you've got it, send that back into the system so the system can process the payment as opposed to register. Mm. I'm going to try to pay with the card failed. Oh, bummer. Start over again. Start a different UI. Let me try a different form. Of oh, bummer. Failed. Oh, you know, right. So this yeah. thing, we, again, the, 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 my, my experience in life, happy accident. We designed the cash thing to solve the problem of paying your bills and doing this other stuff. It turns out to solve this problem in gaming, it turns out to be super extensible. And, and frankly is the, best technological approach to solving the unreliable payments problem in the U.S. for gaming. And so we think yeah, we are permanently advantaged vis-a-vis -vis the gateway model. Now, by the way, if we went to Europe, we'd fall on our face because we don't solve the European problem. We solve the American problem. Oh, right. Does that make sense? Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There are different, different, different problems for different spaces. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you, so the, I, I love the way you describe it of um, at every time that the, the payment fails, offer them a different type of payment. And you just go down, you probably go right down the list and they say, let it be the customer's decision to not pay if they don't want to pay. But ultimately, you know, don't let the company be the bottleneck. Oh, and, uh, and think about how much money got spent by the operator to acquire that consumer in a competitive market and get them through all the screens and get them authenticated. And like, they're motivated. Everybody's motivated. Like, <sighs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, as a customer, that's the worst feeling. Like, you actually go from having an indifferent attitude toward the company to like, I freaking hate this company because they wasted all my time to get here. And now it's like, you know, and, and the customer has no idea that that the reason that I can't use my card is is not because of the company. It's some 
like you said, fraud model of the credit card companies behind the scenes. Is the reason why it's lower, maybe this is wrong, but is it lower risk to use cash in person because there's no there's risk no of a credit card no chargeback? Cash has no, I mean, one of the skills right. we had to develop when we migrated from doing just cash to processing other forms of tender was dealing with fraud and chargebacks, right? Because there is, when we, right. when we take cash in the register, there's no, it's, it's 100% guaranteed good funds. That's not true, for right. example, with processing right. ACH or other forms of payment. So we had to develop, you know, we had to develop the muscles that the, 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 the payments, the traditional payments people are very good at historically, right? Which is how you handle all that. Right. But, and, but we have a fundamental architectural integration that is different. The way we integrate with the properties is fundamentally different than how the card guys integrate. We're adding mm-hmm. cards in mm-hmm. our system where we're the merchant. But we've got this loose asynchronous connection with the ultimate beneficiary. That's what allows us in our loop to have one user interface that's processing multiple forms of tender and gracefully managing the transition between the two of them. Got it. I'm sorry, between the end of them, uh, not the two of them. It, I imagine, I want to ask you about two things. I don't know what order to ask you in, though. Uh, I'm curious about the the whole world of money laundering and money transmitters. And I, all I know about money transmitters in every state is that it's a, quite an accomplishment to get that yes. in all 50 states and it's expensive yes. and there's a lot of things you have to do. Yes. I'm also interested in, in in how crypto plays a role or if it's just another gateway, another, you know, it's no big deal for you guys. It's just another line item on the options for customers. Or do you see cryptocurrency playing a bigger role in your business or just your world? I'll call it your world in general. Like, okay, so the yeah, you want to do the crypto thing first? Sure. Okay, so technologically, yes, crypto is just another form of tender. Now, remember that ultimately all this stuff is flowing through the banking system. So does our bank mm-hmm. par- will our bank partner accept it? Will our customer's bank partner accept it? Will their risk models accept it? Will the regulators for the category of business that we're in accept it? Is there Does it break the KYC model of somebody in the chain? Like... Remember, I talked about this being complicated in the beginning. Like all of these, all those mm. things have to line up, right? So we are a mm. super regulated business processing billions of dollars, tracking every penny and knowing where it came from and where it went, or particularly where it went. <clears throat> we can't put any of that at risk. So we watch the crypto as tender thing with great interest. Um, and we will, you know, mm-hmm. and we will, we are actively working to do all the right stuff to be ready when it's the right time to do it. But we will make sure we do it in a way that makes sure that everybody in this ecosystem, this complicated ecosystem, is is operating within the law, protected from risk, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. We got, you know, we just got to be yeah. very thoughtful. There's a whole separate question I could ask you about, which is, I'm really curious to see what happens to crypto as a form of tender, as opposed to crypto as a form, a store of value. Because if you think it's an appreciating store of value, why would you spend it? Right. Uh, I think there's just going to be, I think it's going to be multiple options. Like Bitcoin, they had the f- Bitcoin split or forked between Bitcoin cash and Bitcoin. So yeah. I think it kind of comes down to the the software architecture, how much it costs to transact or send from one wallet to the other and how mining works. So I think for sure, there's going to be different types of currencies that, that you would use for different types of uh, payments. You know, whether because it's actually just it's not even feasible to send like a penny of Bitcoin or even sometimes like a dollar because it'll just cost you more than the transaction in mining fees. So it's I think of I I think the consensus of the view now is Bitcoin as it is, is really a a competitor to gold and then maybe Bitcoin cash or Ethereum. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So look, we're our our CTO and CISO is super deep in all this stuff and very impassioned, you know, and he, I have active, reactive, very actively discuss this stuff. And my, my general bias is we have to be all over it. Uh, so that at the point we are actually solving a real business problem for somebody, we are ready to move. Yeah. Yeah. We should, I we think it's going to be, we have to be market driven and we have to be driven by the market and constrained by safety and regulation. Um, yeah. But look, we're the, I think I was going to add to that. I, I think there'll be, I think where you'll see the demand will be, will be that clients, or I guess in your case, merchants 
will want to offer this uh, crypto methods of crypto payment to attract customers who probably have crypto accumulating in their accounts and they want to just spend it instead of, you know, trading it back in and classifying it as gains. And by the way, there are other things, you know, there are other ways in which crypto technologies and blockchain can be useful to us. We're certainly interested in anything we can do to accelerate settlements between us and our customers. There are things we are they're interesting to us about moving balances around between different regulated state entities. And so there's there's a bunch of places that we are, you know, really carefully uh, watching and experimenting. Mm-hmm. And, but but we will. Move, yeah. Uh, thoughtfully, I would say. Yeah, I want to ask you for just changing gears a little bit. Um, so you now have a, quite a large company going on. How do you, what advice would you give to your younger self or just, just general thoughts uh, about managing a company of that size? Is there specific tactics or strategies, uh, methodologies maybe that you use to communicate either to investors or to the team or, you know, things change when you get to that scale. You you probably can't have a relationship with everyone. Um, I'm curious how that, how that's gone through, you know, you've, you've started and grown multiple companies now. Uh, gone through business school. It's all about That's having awesome. executives who are really good managers. I'm not a very good manager, um, mm. but I have executives who, who actually run. The, so philosophically, I don't run the company. The executive run the company. I, I, I raise money. I break ties. I communicate. I set values. Um, and I may nudge for one direction or another. But if you start with the premise that I'm not a visionary, and that we should be listening to the market and adjusting, then the right people to make the decisions of what we do are the people who actually run the company, who are the people who run the functions who are closest to the action. So philosophically, that's how my staff works. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. also those people, they have all the people working for them. And the pe- and so they're the ones who have to be really good managers. In fact, the people who work for me have to be good at managing me. Right. So that yeah. rule number one is, you know, yeah. Don't do what you're not good at. And I'm not good at that. So I don't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and then, you know, how do you, how, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, you go. Oh no. You, I was going to ask you, how do you deal with the situation where maybe you hire a manager that is an executive and, you know, maybe she or he is not, you know, quite living up to your, vision of them, you know, they're sort of in that in-between state where they're like, oh, you know, they're kind of, you give them like a C plus. Do you? If, if, I, <laughs> if I had an executive, I thought was uh, probably anything lower than an A minus, I would figure out a way for that executive with dignity to find something else to do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, would you ever read the book or hear about the book? Uh, Oh, was it, is it Elephants Can Dance? I think it was, it was the story of IBM. The book, uh, what's it? Yeah. Gershner, Lou Gershner wrote about IBM. Again, yeah. yeah. What about it? Yeah, I, lo- I-, I love that book because it-, it-, it talked about exactly what he did when he came into office there, which was that he, he asked every one of the managers on the team to give him a, a report and present it to the team uh, about everything that was going on in the company. And it was like refreshing to hear how this works because I, me- I remember reading the book when I was like 22 years old and having no clue what would go on inside of a boardroom of a massive company like that. And it's not rocket science. It's just, it's just ways of communicating that align with pe- what people are good at and then working from the top down to communicate. Uh, I find, I find business management kind of like more interesting. I think there's more to it than most people kind of brush it off or a lot of people would brush it off and say, it's just, you know, you know, one of a million different business books. Um, are there people that you've looked to or learned a lot from or find inspiring that you've learned from in the business world? Oh, for sure. Well, there's one particular and guy, you, this guy I mentioned before, a guy named Bill Campbell, who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago, who many people consider, you know, one of the three or four greatest leaders in the Valley. So among other things that he did, yeah, he was literally on the Apple board while he was sitting in every Google executive staff meeting and he would go back and forth between those guys. And then he would meet with me and be coaching me on the side. Um, and wow. yeah, cause, but I, you know, he, so this is a guy, they, they, the broke the mold when this guy, I think mean, there's, he's, he's the greatest leader, business leader. And I mean, leader in the real sense of leader that I've ever met or probably ever will meet. Um, and 
his approach was entirely value centric, right? So he's one of these guys who could just, he believed in you more than you believed in yourself. And as a result, you would do great things. And he was as pure as the driven snow from a sort of morals, ethics, values perspective and had no tolerance for any bullshit uh, outside of that. And so people who he attracted and retained people around him who all at some level were all incredibly different from one another. And yet, you know, if, 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 at the end of the day, they were all super hardworking, you know, bright, um, had unquestionable mm -hmm. intel, uh, integrity and had what I think he would have called character, but I think now they call grit, which is sort of this ability to stay with it. And if you think about it, there's mm -hmm. lots of people you can think who are in one of those sets. The Venn mm -hmm. diagram intersection of the center of the four of those things is pretty, pretty narrow. And so there would be people around him who were brilliant technologists, incredible athletes, incredible salespeople, incredible whatever, nerds like me, whatever. But, but, but it, they, those are the characteristics they all cared and they all cared about the same things. And they all, we all sort of speak this bill language to some extent. And by the way, 20 something years ago, when I was building good technology, the previous business I mentioned, um, <laughs> Bill walked in and thought what I was doing as a manager was a shit show. Um, and he hmm. called up a protege of his, a guy named Dave Kinzer. And I, unbeknownst to me, called Kinzer up and said, shaders in there fucking this, Okay, I say that shaders in the screwing this. Thing yeah, you can say. Okay, you should yeah. get in there. You got to help them. And Dave started working with me then, as we, and and by the way, to this day, sits in all of our exec staff meetings. So he he is this sort of living embodiment of Bill's values, who is in our who is plays a key fundamental role in our company of keeping us on the rails. Huh, and. Are there specific things? Did you, did you set a team culture rule book or did he have specific tactics that were unusual or I imagine his charisma? No, it's not. Uh, I mean, he's very charismatic, but it wasn't like, you can't emulate the guy's charisma. You can like, none of us, none yeah. of us who've been influenced by Bill can be Bill. By the way, it's a Google, the Google guys wrote a book about him called the trillion dollar coach that came out. Of yeah. Book yeah. Book. So, and there's actually a great podcast series uh, by a guy named Paul Martino, who with one of Bill's closest friends, Randy Comstar, did something called the No Bull Podcast about Bill. That's awesome series of interviews about him. Um, but mm -hmm. no, it wasn't, and, and the reason I mentioned this, all of us aspire to be like Bill, but none of us is like Bill. But hmm. the value stuff is the same, right? So when I, I remember at one point saying to Bill, you know, you've done so much for me, how can I ever repay you? And his response was, you can't. But you can teach my values to the next set of people and have them teach it to the next set of people. And by the way, mm. he said, that's what Floyd Kwame did for me when I came, you know, from Kodak to Silicon Valley and Apple, he ran sales market in Apple, you know, under in the Mac era. Um, and he's like, they did that for me. You're going to do it for these people. They're going to do it for their people. That that's, that's how you repay me. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Pay it forward. Yeah. I mean, it's paid for it. Right. Yeah. But look, there yeah. are, so many people out there um, who, who will act really nice, but when push comes to shove, they're jerks. And Bill didn't. There was never, there was never a jerk level. Like, it was pure. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah. I the like thing that. Is when I, you know, when, I, when the little devil voices are playing that might lead me to do the wrong thing, it's like, well, what would Bill do, right? Well, he wouldn't do that. He'd mm. shut that thing down. Do the right thing. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, what would Jesus do question yeah. for business? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Do you think there are people, I, I'm sure there are, but are there people now that uh, you look at either in the public sphere on public sphere is probably Twitter, um, you know, different social media that seem to be pushing out some similar values to that? Or would you direct people listening uh, to follow any people, or I know you mentioned the book, the trillion dollar coach. Um, well, I, actually, the, 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 I think the book is good, but the book is the book is very good, but the book is very googly. It's a really analytical approach to a to a fundamentally qualitative thing. So it's it's part of the puzzle. I think these the interviews that are on this No Bull podcast, I think, are particularly good. Particularly, I would uh, I would listen to the. There are a few that are just incredible. There's one with like Dave Kinzer, the guy I mentioned who helps us out. There's an interview where 
it's actually a great, I will repeat a story that Bill, that Kinzer tells in that interview that is incredibly powerful where, uh, so Bill ran this, he was head of sales and marketing at Apple, and then he was going to spin out this business called Claris back in the day, which was a Mac software company. Apple was going to take it and spin it out. And he recruited a bunch of people to go work with him. One of them was this guy, Kinzer, who ran operations. And at one point, Kinzer did something wrong, and it cost the company $125,000 or something. And he goes to tell Bill, um, you know, I, I've made this terrible mistake. You know, it, it's going to cost the company $125,000 or whatever. And, and Bill just looked at him and said, like, you're worth a shitload more to this company than $125,000. Mm, yeah. And he just spent $125,000 to teach him a lesson. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. but he also, you know, you think that generated loyalty and a, and a desire to do the right thing? And do you think it made an impact mm-hmm. on Dave for the rest of his life? Can you imagine mm-hmm. somebody saying that to you? I mean, it'd be, it's incredible. At least I found that yeah. very powerful. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, uh, I like it a lot. Um, where do you want to take Painter Me? What do you want to do moving forward? Say in the next five years, are you trying to IPO the company, sell the company, just keep doing what you're doing and not think about that? Well, how do you think about that? I want the company to get, you know, I want it to be bigger and more meaningful. We're trying to build a durable business that will last. And um, so, you know, I think you build the company and everything else takes care of itself. So yeah. it's, we'll, we'll yeah. build the company, everything else will take care of itself. Yeah, I like that. Well, it was a real joy talking to you. Yeah, guys. it was fun. Uh, Danny and uh, Anne, we'll have, to, we'll have to get you more involved in the next conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, uh, I should mention, yeah, yeah. Um, Danny, where can people reach you? People are inspired by the conversation or want to just follow more of your you know, I don't know if you're writing or speaking more publicly. I saw you did a couple interviews publicly. Uh, are you on any of the social I'm not, no, webs? I mean, yeah, I've, no, I'm not. I just tweet my political leanings, so that's not that's not worth following. Um, certainly, the Painter <laughs> Me Twitter Twitter account is good, and then um, and yeah. then I'm Danny at PainterMe.com if anybody wants to reach out. Oh, nice, nice, nice. All right. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And anything you guys are looking for now, whether it's hiring management engineers, raising money, there's lots of uh, job postings and we would love for people to take a look and come join us. Assuming they have those values. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys, this is a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.